0: Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. Well, today, leading off, we're going to summarize some of the top stories in science. Our lead story, once again, talks about the Omicron virus. But some people are saying... Maybe, maybe it's not so bad. Maybe it's just like the flu. Maybe it's an endemic rather than a pandemic. If so, then throw off your mask, let it rip. In fact, some nations are beginning to take with that idea. Maybe this is the fastest way to go back to normal. Get infected, let it rip. Well, we'll say a few things like that. However, I personally believe that maybe the pendulum is swinging too far in the other direction, thinking that perhaps the worst is over and that the pandemic is turning into an endemic. Also in the news, the Chinese have announced that their fusion reactor has set a world record. It has been able to produce a plasma five times hotter than the sun for a period of 17 minutes. That's a world record. So we'll say a few things about energy for the future. Fusion power. Is it possible to put the sun in a bottle? And we'll say a few things about the Webb Space Telescope. There was a flawless launch of this new telescope back around Christmas. Now it's in place. It's in place about a million miles from the planet Earth. And in about two months or so, we expect to find the first glorious pictures of Coming from the Webb Space Telescope, the most expensive, most powerful telescope ever put into outer space, and then we'll say a few things about well, science fiction and antimatter, antiprotons. Is it possible to have anti-gravity? If you watch science fiction movies today, everything has anti-gravity. Everything floats. Everything whizzes in the sky, but. There's a new experiment done at CERN outside Geneva, Switzerland, where we have the world's largest atom smasher to test some of these ideas: antimatter, anti-gravity. Well, antimatter, yes. Anti-gravity, no. Sorry about that. And then I'll say a few things about, well, Bitcoin, something that I usually don't talk about. You know, this program is about science. However. Friends of mine are thinking about seriously investing in Bitcoin. And, well, we'll talk about the pros and cons of whether or not you should invest in Bitcoin. So we'll say a few things about whether or not you could lose your shirt or perhaps make a killing. Well, let's just jump right into some of the top stories of the past week. It turns out that the Omicron virus is much more... Infectious than the previous Delta version. In fact, it has overtaken the Delta within just a period of about a month in terms of infectiousness. But it's, well, some people say it's like the flu. We're not talking about horrible death tolls among the people that get the virus. Therefore, some people are saying maybe we should let it in. Maybe we should throw away the mask, get it over with, get infected. And let's put an end to the agony. Well, there is a case to be made, but I think there's another side to the story. First of all, we now know that, yes, the virus is less lethal than Delta. However, less lethal to whom? You have to realize that most of those studies were done on the vaccinated. When you take a look at the rate of infection for the unvaccinated, then you see that, well, There is a death rate, hospitalization rate, that's pretty high. So in other words, don't believe it when people say that the Omicron virus is just like the flu. Yes, for some people, mainly the vaccinated, especially those that got the booster shot. Because apparently the Omicron will go right through uh, two vaccinations by the Pfizer vaccine. And so in other words, perhaps it's a little bit premature to throw away the mask to let the virus in, because it's not really a pandemic yet. So, what's the difference between a pandemic and an epidemic? And what does it mean for you? Well, an endemic is like the flu. In other words, we don't cure it. It's everywhere, but we live with it because it's tolerable. Yes, people die from it, but for the most part, we're not talking about the panic and the huge hospitalization rate created by the coronavirus. And so that's what an endemic is. And some people are saying, maybe this pandemic is really an endemic. Well, I don't think so. Now, eventually, eventually it may become an endemic later this year, as more and more people are vaccinated with a booster shot. And yes, some people will get infected with the Omicron virus in addition. But for the unvaccinated, watch out. It could be a death warrant. And to add to the picture, there could be another mutant virus out there. You know, this virus is mutating faster than we previously thought. And why is that? Because the pool of unvaccinated people is a reservoir for mutations. The more unvaccinated people you have, the more chances of getting mutations. And since there's a certain fragment of the population that is either unvaccinated by choice or by accident and by economics, because there are so many people that are unvaccinated, that's where you're going to get most of the mutations coming from. And we still have a ways to go. So in other words, uh, it's a little bit premature to think that things, better days are ahead. It's a little bit premature to think that it's just a question of out outweighing the virus. No, the virus is still out there. It's still lethal. It can still kill people, especially those who are not vaccinated. So what's the lesson in all of this? The lesson in all of this is, first of all, get vaccinated. Get a booster shot and wear the mask and obey all the protocols that you've memorized for the last three years because it's still out there. It's not yet an endemic. That doesn't mean it can't happen, but who knows what lurks around the corner. These mutations are unpredictable. There's no computer program, there's no crystal ball that can tell you what kinds of mutants there are out there, and so we have to be cautious about this whole process. Well, moving on, the Chinese made a stunning announcement that's causing certain ruffles in the scientific community. The Chinese have announced that they have created a machine, a fusion machine, which attains a temperature five times hotter than the sun, and they did it for 17 minutes, breaking all the previous records. Now, let me explain. There are two kinds of nuclear power plants, one based on fission power, which is uranium-fueled reactors. These are the reactors that we see around the country, fission power. And then we have fusion power, not based on uranium, but based on merging hydrogen, like in the sun, at high temperatures to unleash the power of the sun. So what are the pros and cons between fission, that is what we have in your backyard or nearby, and fusion power. First of all, fission power is dirty. It creates copious quantities of nuclear waste. A standard commercial nuclear power plant creates about 30 tons of high-level nuclear waste every year, and that nuclear waste has to, in principle, be sequestered from the environment for tens of millions of years. That's how radioactive this waste is, very deadly, and it's hot. And there have been scores of leaks and accidents with regards to these waste cans. Second of all, because you have all that hot radioactive waste, even when the reactor is turned off, a fission reactor can have a meltdown. Where does the energy of a meltdown come from when you hit the off button on the plant? It comes from the heat of the nuclear waste, called decay heat. Take a look at what happened at Chernobyl. At Chernobyl, it went out of control. The heat was so violent, it created a steam and hydrogen explosion that blew the lid right off the Chernobyl reactor. And roughly two-thirds, two-thirds of the core, well, stayed in the reactor, but one-third was blown into outer space. Think about that. One-third of the core was blown into the air over Europe where it set off alarms across the continents. And so you have to realize that there is a price you pay for fission power, and that is copious quantities of nuclear waste and the possibility of a meltdown. Now, fusion power that we're talking about now has neither problem. When a fusion reactor gets out of control, what happens? It shuts off. The fusion reactor process cannot be sustained if the plasma hits the walls of the reactor, for example. And so it's self-limiting. And what kinds of nuclear waste comes out of a fusion plant? Almost nothing. Some of the steel becomes radioactive, but radioactive steel is a lot easier to bury than hundreds of tons of nuclear waste that comes out of nuclear plants around the country. And another byproduct is helium gas. But helium gas is actually commercially valuable you can actually sell it. Now, both of them have the advantage that they don't use or produce carbon dioxide. So in that sense, they are a hedge against global warming. But what are the cons now? The cons of fusion power is that it doesn't exist. That's why the Chinese announcement is still a little bit premature. The best hope now for controlled fusion is the ITER fusion reactor, Based in southern France. It'll probably generate its first energy in 2025. So, very soon, we're going to approach a time when the headlines could blare that either we attained what is called break even or not in 2025. Break even is when you create enough energy that's comparable to the energy you put in. So, the net gain is zero. That's called break even. So far, no reactor in history, no fusion reactor in history, has ever attained break-even. So we think that the ITER in southern France will actually attain break-even. In fact, 10 times break-even. We think it'll generate 10 times more energy than it consumes. So what's the problem? Well, they don't exist yet. And why don't they exist? Because it's very difficult to contain hot gas. Hot gas, that is, five times the temperature of the sun. Stability, then. The stability of the gas is the reason why we don't yet have the power of the sun in our backyard. But physicists are now fairly confident that come 2025, the headlines will say that we have achieved break-even and commercialization of the technology will occur sometime in mid-century hopefully in time, to rein in global warming, or at least to be part of the effort to rein in global warming. Well, we'll see about that. But like I said before, we've had a lot of delays with regards to fusion power because of the problem of stability, the stability of this hot gas that has to be separated from the environment because the temperature is many times The temperature of the sun. But think about it. Energy from seawater. Seawater is the basic source of hydrogen. Hydrogen is the fuel of nuclear power plants. And so the energy supply comes from the oceans. So think about it. No meltdown. No nuclear waste or very little nuclear waste. And the fuel is basically seawater. Well, moving on. The Webb Space Telescope, costing about $10 billion, is finally up in outer space, and perhaps in two months, we'll get the first pictures from the Webb Telescope. The Webb Telescope is a replacement for the Hubble Space Telescope, which is nearing the end of its lifespan, and it is bigger, much bigger than the Hubble. It's light like gathering power seven times It gathers seven times more light than the Hubble Space Telescope, and it'll peer into what is called the Dark Age. The universe was born 13.8 billion years ago, and when it was first born, there was a big flash, but then it was dark. Atoms did not exist yet, as we know it, and then after a few hundred million years, the first stars began to form. That's the end of the so-called dark age when the first stars began to form about 13.5 billion years ago. And then the first stars created the first galaxies. That's called first light when the universe began to light up. But we have no pictures from that period. And that's what the Webb telescope will do. It'll give us baby pictures. Baby pictures of the infant universe maybe 13.5 billion billion years ago. And because it uses infrared detectors rather than optical detectors, it means that it can peer into dust clouds. Now by rights, every night the nucleus of the Milky Way galaxy should light up and outshine the moon. Think about that. A a gigantic fireball brighter than the moon every night Coming out in the direction of Sagittarius. But when you look in the direction of Sagittarius, what do you see? Nothing, except for a few stars. Nothing. Why? Dust clouds. Dust clouds obscure the center of the galaxy where there is a black hole. A black hole at the very center of the Milky Way galaxy, about four million times the mass of the Sun. You can't see it because of dust. But that's where the web space telescope comes in. It can see into the infrared range. And what's in the infrared range? Heat radiation. And so we'll be able to detect, we hope, black holes and stars and the interior of the galaxy itself with the Webb Space Telescope. Not only that, but so far we've identified 4,000 planets orbiting other stars in the Milky Way galaxy. On average, every star in the galaxy you see at night has a planet going around it. Every star has a planet going around it on average. And with the web, we'll be able to get detailed photographs of them and perhaps even pictures of these planets. Imagine that, a photograph of a planet going around, not our sun, but a distant star. That is amazing. And we think that the web will just have the capability of doing that. We're keeping our fingers crossed. We hope it has the sensitivity to actually give us photographs of other planets. Think about that. Photographs of other planets that may have oceans, may even have people. We don't know. So these are some of the things that we expect to come out of the Webb Space Telescope. Also... Maybe pictures of black holes. Recently, pictures of the black hole at the center of the galaxy M87 were released. And people marveled at the fact that you can actually photograph the accretion disk surrounding a black hole. Well, that was done by lashing together about five smaller radio telescopes to give you one big super telescope. So I think maybe the web may not be big enough to do that. But hey, cross your fingers, maybe it'll be able to detect the black hole at the center of our galaxy. Also, if you're a science fiction fan, you know that everything has anti-gravity. In Back to the Future, there was Michael J. Fox with a hoverboard hovering right over the pavement. If you watch Star Wars, everything has anti-gravity capabilities, but... Is that really true? Well, the way to get anti-gravity some people say is by antimatter. Well, we do make antimatter. Antimatter is found, for example, antiprotons at the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva, Switzerland. So what happens if you put matter and antimatter in a bottle and let it drop? Will anti-gravity pull it down to the floor or will it fall up rather than fall down? And what about the charge? Are the charges the same? Well, we can now answer all those questions. We've done it. we put an antiproton and a proton in a bottle, and we look to see what happens. First of all, the electric charges on both of them are identical. The proton has positive charge, the antiproton has negative charge, and they have equal charges to one part in 1% of a billion. That is an incredible accuracy. And do they fall or do they fall up? Well, it turns out they both fall down to within 3% of a billionth of a power. In other words, they are identical in charge, except one has the opposite charge and in terms of weight. So in other words, don't hold your breath. Science fiction gets it wrong that anti-gravity, if it exists at all, is much harder to attain than simply trying to put anti-matter together. But we'll see in the future whether or not other particles can be created by the Large Hadron Collider, but at the present time, anti-protons? Yes. Anti-gravitons? No. Sorry about that. Also, let me say a few things about Bitcoin. Usually on Science Fantastic, we talk about science. However, there is a science of gambling. It's called game theory. And some of my friends are thinking of jumping into the Bitcoin craze. So let me say a few things about that. Even the mayor of New York City, Mayor Eric Adams, states that New York City should become a Bitcoin center. It should remain the financial center of the world says the mayor of New York, which means having Bitcoin right here at the Big Apple. Well, first of all, let me say that you're free to invest in your uh, investments any way you want. I mean, I'm not going to tell you what to invest in. It's your choice. You can throw away the money or you can reap tremendous benefits. It's your call, not mine. However, let's take a look at what you are doing. Some people say, well, it's a gamble, but so is the stock market. The stock exchange, some people say, is really the slot exchange. The stock market is like one gigantic one-armed bandit. Well, in some sense, there is a resemblance, but there is a difference. And that is when you invest in a stock, you invest in a company, Hopefully, the company creates things that are socially valuable, goods, services, it creates things, things that hopefully will raise the prosperity of a society. When you invest in Bitcoin, what are you investing in? You're investing in Bitcoin. So what are the pros and cons of Bitcoin? Well, to look at the cons, look at the worst case scenario. Remember the tulip mania of the 1600s? Well, maybe your memory doesn't extend that far back. But if you read about the tulip mania of the 1600s, you realize that a large number of wealthy individuals, as well as ordinary people, invested in tulips. Tulips because that was the craze of the time. And sure enough, when you invested in it, the next day it was worth more. It was money for free. People put their life savings into the tulip craze until, of course, the inevitable happened. There was a crash. People lost their shirt. And can that happen today? Well, sure, it happens all the time. Look at all the different scams that surge through Wall Street and through society. And is there a protection against that? Well, yes and no. Banks, for example, have FDIC which in principle can insure your savings up to a certain point. Banks, of course, uh, are insured by FDIC or most of the big banks. Small banks, you have to be careful. But what about governments? Do governments have a foolproof insurance policy? Well, they can print money. But, of course, that's dangerous if you print too much money. Money becomes worthless, and so there's a problem there. But at least you get something back. With Bitcoin, what do you get? Nothing back. So you say to yourself, well, wait a minute. I could make a fortune on Bitcoin, especially if you invested earlier. If you invested when, first, when Bitcoin first came out, you could be a millionaire today. So there's no doubt that you can make money there. The question is, when do you pull out? That's the $64,000 question. Same thing with the stock market. You can invest in the stock market, but it all depends on when you pull out because there could be, quote, a correction, unquote. Now, with a profitable company, there are things that back your investment. So, worse comes to worse, you get so many pennies per dollar. You get something back if the company goes bankrupt, Their bankruptcy proceedings and things like that. They sell off this. They sell off that. You'll get something in return, but you'll have a net negative. But with Bitcoin, you can lose your shirt. In other words, there is no guarantee. There is nothing backing Bitcoin at all because it never advertised anything that it was backing anyway. It's up to you. So who invests in Bitcoin? Well, originally, it was people on the margins, that is, criminals, people that wanted to evade the government's uh, prying eyes, because, of course, who regulates Bitcoin? And the answer is nobody. It's a computer program. That's all it is. So when it first came out, some people said, hey, this is a great way to evade governments. No more prying eyes. No more having to declare this on your income tax because it was under the radar. And so a lot of people thought, hey, this is a way to make money. And some of them did. There's no doubt about that. But for every winner, perhaps there's also a loser someplace as well, because he goes up and down like a yo-yo. You have to have nerves of steel. And like I said before, the key question is, when do you pull out? When do you cash in? At a certain point, if you made money and you cashed in, you can say to yourself, ha, look at all those fools out there. They lost their shirt. However, I made a bundle. Yes, that is definitely possible. But if you wait too long and there's a major correction, you could lose your shirt. And so the so-called wise men of investment say that if you're young and foolhardy, well, yeah, Why not? It's like like a one-armed bandit. You get your thrills, and hey, some people make money on it. But if you're older, and you have to worry about retirement, you have to worry about one day perhaps going to an old-age home, you have to realize that, no, the money in your pocket is not going to last forever, and you have to realize that maybe it's not a good idea to invest everything when you're older, because you don't have the energy to bounce back. When you're young, yes, you can throw away your money, be like a fool, have great fun. It's all in fun, you might say to yourself, because you're going to live forever, you think. But when you're older, you begin to realize you don't live forever. And somebody has to pay the bills as they mount. So in other words, my point of view is, it's your money, you can do what you want, But all I'm saying is if you invest in stocks, at least you're investing in a company that hopefully produces something socially valuable, and hopefully there's a safety net there. However, with Bitcoin, there's no safety net. Well, that concludes the first part of exploration. Stay tuned for the second part when we bring on a Princeton physicist talking about time travel. Yes, is it possible to go backwards in time? Stay tuned for the second half of exploration. back to Exploration with Dr. Michio Kaku. In the second half of Exploration, we're going to bring on Professor Richard Gott, who authored a book called Time Travel in Einstein's Universe. So we're going to talk about, well, is time travel really possible? Is it possible to bend time like a bristle? Also, let me say that if you're interested in my work, go to my website, mkaku.org. That's my website, mkaku.org. I have 5 million fans on Facebook, and I've written five New York Times bestsellers. My latest New York Times bestseller is called The God Equation The Quest for a Theory of Everything. And it's about what I do for a living. I work on something called string theory. In fact, I'm the co founder of string field theory, one of the branches of string theory. And the hope is that one day we'll be able to formulate the theory so that we can perhaps test it and see whether or not it can summarize all physical laws into one equation, perhaps no more than one inch long. Well, anyway, once again, today in the second half of exploration, we're going to bring on Princeton University professor J. Richard Gott, talking about his idea using Einstein's theory to go backwards in time. The first question for you, Professor Gott, is how did you first get
1: interested in physics? Well, I got interested in astronomy when I was about eight years old. I belonged to a um, stargazer group that was organized by our Junior Astronomical Society, and so I did telescope, and astronomy was a hobby of mine in, in high school. And when I became interested in physics in high school and so forth, I... I I later decided to uh, uh, take my physics and work on astrophysics because that had always been a hobby and of particular interest to me.
0: And was there anything about the romance of the stars? Uh, Anything about, for example, looking for intelligent life in outer space or or wondering where the universe came from? Was there anything specific about astronomy that fascinated you?
1: Well, I was particularly interested in the Big Bang theory. (laughs) Uh, At that time... uh, This was a bit before uh, Penzies and Wilson had discovered the um, cosmic microwave background radiation. So I was always a fan of the um, Big Bang theory versus the, uh, as opposed to the steady state theory.
0: Okay, and I understand today uh, you are affiliated with the uh, the N- Intel Science Talent Search, or formerly known as the Westinghouse Science Talent Search. So tell us a little bit about uh, your experience uh, judging high school kids.
1: Well, for many years I was the judge, head chairman of the judges for the uh, first Westinghouse, and then it's now sponsored by Intel, the Intel Science Talent Search, and this is a wonderful. Uh, Science competition that's the oldest and most prestigious uh, competition for high school students in science in the country, and um, five of its uh, winners have gone on to win Nobel prizes. So um, uh, it's a wonderful contest, and it uh, asks you to do a piece of real research and submit your research just like you would write a research paper and so forth. So. uh, unlike a, a test of some sort, it's really um, you just try research, and uh, we look at your research. So it's it's kind of like if you were a baseball camp, you know, you could you could test people out by seeing how fast they ran down to first base. That would give you some idea of how they might play baseball. But a baseball scout would tell you that it's really if you're scouting for the major leagues, you really want to see people actually play baseball. So uh, this gives students a chance to do real research projects, which are fun. And uh, many people that enter this contest, they fall in love with doing research and do it for the rest of their lives. And many of the winners of this contest have um, gone on to wonderful uh, careers in science. So I would encourage people to um, apply for it. Forty winners come to... Uh, uh, Washington each year, and they give out very large college scholarships, and it's a very exciting thing.
0: Okay, now let's talk about time travel in particular. Uh, There's a movie hitting the silver screen right now called Terminator 3, where killer robots uh, from the future come back to harass us in the past. So uh, what started your romance with time machines? Because in the area of physics, uh, most physicists tend to, uh, at least in the old days, scoff at the whole notion of going backwards in time.
1: Well, I got interested in time travel by exploring some solutions to Einstein's equations. Um, Einstein developed his theory of general relativity, which is his theory of curved space-time to explain gravity. And we take this uh, theory very seriously, because when he, when he finally solved the equations for this in 1915, uh, they made predictions predictions about light bending as it would pass near the sun, and these were checked experimentally, and Einstein was found to be right, and Newton was found to be wrong. So uh, since then, people have been interested in exploring exact solutions to Einstein's equations, and you've heard of uh, probably the most famous one is the black hole solution. That's an exact solution to Einstein's equations. So we take black holes seriously, even though they're quite extraordinary objects, because they do solve Einstein's equations of gravity. So I, was in, I got interested in cosmic strings. These are uh, theoretical objects that are um, uh, dense threads of energy left over after the Big Bang that are predicted in about half the theories of uh, unified particle physics in the early universe. We, we haven't found them yet, but we are searching for them. And uh, I found an exact solution for uh, one cosmic string, what the geometry around one cosmic string would look like. Uh, And William Hiscock found the same solution independently of me, so we're given joint credit for this solution, to Einstein's equation. And then later, I investigated two moving cosmic strings, what an exact solution would look like if two strings were to pass each other. And... Uh, I indeed found an exact solution for that uh, geometry. And it turned out that if the strings were moving fast enough but still slower than the speed of light, that this was a solution that would allow you to circle around the cosmic strings and arrive back home before you started. So (laughs) it would allow time travel to the past. And there have been a number of general relativity solutions like this. The first one was found by famous mathematician Kurt Gödel in 1949, um, a sort of rotating universe that uh, we don't live in that kind of universe, but it's an interesting solution to the equations uh, that allows time travel to the past, and if there's one solution like that, there could be others, and then Kip Thorne and his associates found wormhole solutions that allowed time travel to the past. So it's extremely interesting that these equations of uh, Einstein's of general relativity Uh, themselves, and this is our best theory of gravity at the time, uh, uh, seem to allow solutions that allow time travel to the past. So I got interested in it just from trying to understand um, Einstein's equations with objects that we were interested in.
0: Okay, now let's talk about the movies. Everyone likes the movies, and (laughs) uh, people have seen a lot of movies where we have Black holes that are rotating very rapidly. Right. And according to mathematician Roy Kerr in 1963, he did find a solution of Einstein's equations where if you pass through the ring, uh, not a point, but a ring that's spinning very rapidly, you would wind up on a parallel universe, perhaps even in a distant point in time. So could you elaborate about what happens if you, heaven forbid, fall through a black hole and make it, quote, to the other side, unquote?
1: Well, this was an unperturbed black hole. Uh, it's the solution to Einstein's equations. And um, uh, this is one that's left alone completely. And you ignore the effects of Hawking radiation, which we can mention later. Uh, but this first solution for a rotating black hole showed that if you traveled inside the black hole, instead of a singular point in the center, you would find, as you said, a ring singularity. If you pass through the ring, uh, you could navigate your spaceship in such a way that you could travel back in time, um, and then after leaving this region, you could go uh, and and pop out into another universe. Um, uh, sort of like getting on an elevator to store and going up to the first, uh, going from the first floor to the second and you could get out on the second-floor universe. Then later you could go out and go up to the third-floor universe and so forth. But there was no getting back to the first floor. There, once you went in the rotating black hole, it was not possible to come back outside and brag to your friends about your adventures. But quite interestingly, there was a region of time travel that was trapped inside the rotating black hole in Kerr's solution.
0: Okay, now let's say you go through the black hole and you're not crushed by gravity because it's, you know, gravity is spread out a little bit throughout the ring. However, there are some naysayers who say, wait a minute, let's not go so fast. And you mentioned that the black hole was not perturbed. So could you tell us a little bit about uh, some of the naysayers who say that maybe you can't make it quite all the way through that black hole?
1: Well, the trouble is that the when you pass inside this uh, uh, black hole and you pass into the region of time travel, if you're looking back outside, you're watching, that you're seeing the history of the external universe as you're passing outside. And in, in Mr. Kerr's solution, uh, as you passed into the region of time travel, you would be able to see the entire future history of the universe pass before your eyes. Now... You might say, well, this is a good thing, very interesting for historians. You get to see the whole future history of the universe in a finite amount of time. But the trouble is those photons coming in would be infinitely blue-shifted and and become, instead of visible photons, they would become ultraviolet and gamma-ray photons. So these could kill you. You have to pass them on your way into the region of time travel. Um, uh, other effects need to be considered, too, like the fact that the black hole may evaporate, would it be expected to evaporate from Hawking radiation, which cuts off your view of the very late history of the universe, but also induces other effects, quantum effects on the inside of the black hole. So um, the the situation is that um, uh, some people have explored uh, this um, uh, situation, uh, Mr. Burko, for one, Amos Ory, um, and they have uh, found that, that you, traveling to the region of time travel, um, you, you would probably pass a singularity. The, the, the uh, curvature of space-time would, would, would become uh, infinite. However, um, it takes a very brief amount of time for this to occur, so the singularity may be, may be weak in the sense that it, that it may not tear your body completely apart. And also, quantum effects would be expected to uh, knock out any infinities in the solution. So um, the trouble is that we don't really uh, know exactly what happens to you when you go inside a rotating black hole, and we we may need a theory of quantum gravity uh, to explain this. We know how gravity behaves on macroscopic, ordinary scales. Einstein's theory gives us a wonderful... and very well-checked theory of that, but we don't know how gravity behaves on microscopic scales, and um, to understand what would really happen going into a black hole, we may need to know that.
0: Okay, well, we have had on this radio show several people who work in super theory, like I do, and yeah. we do look at these things. However, the theory is not very well-developed yet. So let's ask a hypothetical question. Let's say you are an advanced civilization, like we see in the movies. Uh, an advanced civilization that can move planets and move stars. I mean, really powerful technology we're having here now. With that kind of technology, do you think that someone could go through the ring to perhaps a parallel universe or perhaps in time, or it's just simply not known in terms of what we know about quantum gravity? Or do most people think, bah, humbug, you just can't do it?
1: Well, um, I think that the... um uh, if you're using my um, uh, cosmic strings, uh, what a super civilization would try to do is, is find a loop of cosmic strings. Uh, cosmic strings, either infinite, uh, they have no ends, so either they're infinite, if we found them, they're either infinite or they come in loops. So you can think of spaghetti or o's. So find one of the o's, one of the loops, manipulate it so that it collapses by a large factor, and you could, you could arrange it with your massive spaceship flying around it so that uh, the two sides of the string would pass each other at the speed required to make a time machine. But I was able to show in that case that this would also uh, uh, be in grave danger of forming a black hole. In fact, it would likely form a black hole. So the regions of time travel would likely be trapped inside, just as we've talked about in the rotating uh, black hole case. So... Um I think one thing to emphasize is that um, uh, these are projects that really uh, the, this loop would weigh half the mass of our own galaxy. So we're talking about projects that really only a super civilization w- could attempt. But as you say, we're interested in finding out whether a civilization with arbitrarily large powers but but still operating under the laws of physics could do it. And I think, Uh, probably until we really get a theory of quantum gravity, uh, we can't say for sure whether they would succeed or not.
0: Okay, now let's talk about the wormhole, because on Star Trek, they simply zap through wormholes to the other side of the galaxy. Now, if you had a uh, black hole, there is a problem there, and that is it's a one-way ticket. It's basically a roach motel. Uh, You go in and you never check out again. It's a one-way trip. However, these wormholes that we see on Star Trek are transversible. You go back and forth, back and forth. It's like uh, taking a Sunday drive right through a wormhole. So tell us a little bit about wormholes and whether or not they're practical.
1: Well, the wormhole idea got started when Carl Sagan, who was writing this book, Contact, which later became a famous movie, um, uh, he wanted to use a wormhole to get Jodie Foster from one part of the galaxy to another. And so he called up his friend, Kip Thorne, and said, "Uh, listen, I'd I'd like to get the physics right here. What about the physics of wormholes? So Kip Thorne and his associates investigated this, and they found out that in order to transverse it back and forth, um, uh, you had to prop it open with some what we call negative energy density stuff. This is stuff that weighs less than zero. Uh, In other words, you'd have to add... Uh, mass to this to get back to zero. It's it's stuff that weighs less than zero. Well, that's very strange stuff, but um, you might say, well, that's uh, strange. You wouldn't expect to find that. But uh, curiously, we do know of a quantum mechanical effect, the Casimir effect, which um, is one where if you take two parallel metal conducting plates and you put them very close together, the quantum vacuum state in between the two plates actually acquires a negative energy density. It weighs less than zero. So uh, Kip Thorne was proposing, and, 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 and similar effects occur in, in connected with Hawking radiation and black holes and so forth. So we know of quantum effects that can induce negative energy density states. So um, what Kip Thorne proposed to do was to, to cover the mouth of each um, wormhole, with a, a, a conducting plate and put them uh, close to each other in the wormhole tunnel, 10 to the minus 10 centimeters apart, so that they introduced a large negative energy density, and then you could traverse by opening trapdoors in these um, in these uh, metal plates. You could traverse the wormhole, and um, uh, you know not be killed. Um, so um, again, the engineering effects of this were enormous. Uh, the the, the wormhole he was talking about involved 200 million solar masses, 200 million times the mass of the sun. So, um, but again, he was interested to know whether uh, these things were, were possible in principle at all under the laws of uh, general relativity.
0: Okay, well, let's say you want to build one of these things, okay? People talk about these things. Uh, Paul Davies, who we actually had on the radio show a few years ago, even wrote a book about how to build a time machine, okay? Now, again, one of the problems is you have to get negative energy if you go the route of the wormhole. And then the question is, well, how do you get negative energy in large quantities? The Casimir effect is very tiny. It takes laboratory instruments, very delicate instruments, to measure this effect. However, we want to just rip space and time apart and, and uh, change the topology of, of the universe. So if you were, once again, a very advanced civilization, how could you possibly assemble large quantities of negative energy to open up a wormhole?
1: Well, the, the mechanism that's being used is to, is to bring the plates very close together. Um, the plates are, 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 are pulling toward, toward each other, uh, this effect has been measured in, in the lab, and if you let the plates go very close to each other, you can get a very large um, amount of um, uh, negative energy density. We have to engineer this uh, um, so that the plates can go. In, in Kip Thorne's case, he was he was having them uh, 10 to the 10th centimeters, uh, 10 to the minus 10 centimeters uh, apart. So. Um, that's the mechanism that's used. How do you get the wormhole in the first place? The the idea here was that um, space-time on very small scales, 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, microscopic scales, um, may be sponge-like. Quantum fluctuations might be causing little microscopic wormholes to be forming all the time. And so the idea would be to find one of those and somehow enlarge it uh, this was Thorne's proposal, and, and, and make it large enough so, and, and then, then you could keep propping it open with this negative energy density stuff. So, um, uh, no doubt it's an extraordinarily difficult um, uh, feat, but we're interested to know whether it's possible in principle.
0: Okay, well, there's even a television commercial now I was watching, uh, talking about building a wormhole to deliver products to the customers. So the idea of wormholes is out there. However, the advertisement stumbles on this whole question of, well, how do you energize this thing with negative energy? So you mentioned the Casimir effect. Uh, where Where else in the universe can we find negative energy? It's a very exotic kind of thing. It's not the kind of thing we see in the laboratory. Uh, where else in the universe can we find negative energy?
1: Well, black holes is one uh, location. Um, when Stephen Hawking was working on um, black holes, um, one of the things he, he proved was that if um, uh, uh, once you formed a black hole, it would only get bigger. Uh, its horizon, as it were, would, would only get bigger. Uh, and so as it gobbled more and more material, in fact, he he, he proved a theorem that, If energy density was always positive, uh, the black hole, if you just add energy density to it, the black hole would always get bigger. But then people started to think about um, what would happen to a black hole uh, with quantum effects, and Stephen Hawking showed that black holes actually evaporate. And so uh, over time, um, there's a quantum vacuum effect uh, in the empty space around the black hole, Uh, that you have uh, vacuum fluctuations that cause uh, particles to be emitted from the black hole and then also cause the the black hole to lose energy. And so if you look at the um, quantum vacuum state that exists around the black hole, which Stephen Hawking found, um, it has a slight negative energy density which steals energy from the black hole and causes it to evaporate. And so uh, that's an example of, Um, a naturally occurring phenomena that we expect is occurring uh, uh, every day.
0: Now, Paul Davies, in his book on how to build a time machine, uh, stumbles over this very same question, and he mumbles that, well, maybe we can build banks of laser beams. Uh, Lasers can have positive and negative, what are called squeeze states, and he doesn't explain how to do it, and this is, of course, the key question. What is the gasoline? What is the energy that drives your machine? And he mumbles and says, well, maybe one day we'll have huge banks of lasers that we could fire into our chamber to prop open the mouth of a wormhole. Um, are you
1: impressed by that book? Uh, well, I probably wouldn't use lasers. <laughs> I, mean, I, I still think the Casimir effect that, that, that uh, Thorne talked about is the most uh, promising proposal to get the uh, negative energy density state. We we know it produces a negative energy density state, and uh, the the engineering question is you know can you build these plates you know close enough together. This is a this is a um, uh, uh, extraordinarily challenging. Um, engineering a solution, but he, he was going to do this by having electrically charged plates. The electric charge would keep the plate from collapsing. The, the repulsion of the electric charges would keep the plate from collapsing, and, and to put the two plates very close together. So um, I think that's the, uh, the original Kip Thorne and his associates' proposal, is 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 still the most, uh, uh, if you will, practical one, and 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 this is real, really something that we've observed in the lab. So I, I think it's uh, by that turn uh, uh, they were trying for a, a conservative solution that involved physics that we uh, understand.
0: Okay, now let's talk about the movies again. Uh, in Back to the Future, uh, Michael J. Fox rockets back to uh, the '50s where he meets his teenage mother who then falls in love with the future son. Which raises <laughs> right. the question, how can the future son be born if the young mother spurns the future father and uh, runs off with the, uh, the future son? So, what about the so-called grandfather paradox? In your cosmic string uh, scenario, yeah. you can whip around the colliding cosmic strings and come back before you left. Or you can meet yourself. So what happens if you meet yourself before you leave and you decide to shoot yourself?
1: Well, uh, physicists that are working on the time travel to the past, these solutions that are sufficiently twisted to allow time travel to the past, do have to deal with the uh, grandfather paradox. And there are two solutions to this problem, um, either one of which works. And uh, I, I would say physicists are divided on which one is, is correct. Um the first one is the conservative solution this is that uh... we have one four-dimensional geometry to space-time that doesn't change it may be twisted around so that your path through space-time your world line instead of looking like a straight piece of spaghetti going toward the future uh, looks is curled back and and, and loops around so it can visit itself Um, there may be world lines like that but they don't change so in that picture time travelers never changed the past. They were always part of it. So in that scenario, for example, if you went back on the Titanic and tried to warn the captain about the uh, iceberg, well, of course, he wouldn't pay attention to your warning, as he didn't pay attention to any other warnings, because we know the ship went down. In in fact, one wag actually suggested that... uh, Maybe the real reason the Titanic sank was that all the weight of all the time travelers on board and <laughs> stowed away to see the event. So time travelers can influence history, but they were always part of it. It never changed. Uh, and so in Michael J. Fox, uh, w- in fact, uh, could not have prevented his parents from meeting because they didn't because uh, they ended up having him. The other solution by David Deutsch, which is perhaps more radical, is involves the many-worlds theory of quantum mechanics, and this is the idea that there are many parallel worlds out there, like parallel tracks in a railway switching yard, and although we see one track, one history, uh, the universe uh, consists of many tracks, and we're like a train going in the switching yard. We're switching from track to track, and we see one history, but there are actually many. There's a history where the parallel universe there where World War II never happened.
0: Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Our special guest was Professor Robert Gott, author of the book Time Travel in Einstein's Universe. And if you want to know more about my work, go to my website, mkaku.org, m-k-a-k-u.org. I have five million fans on Facebook, and I've written five New York Times bestsellers. My latest bestseller is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory, of everything good day